Min, welcome to our podcast. Hi, Joanne. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. So, Min, since we last saw each other, life has changed quite drastically for you. So, from red dot to EY. Tough question first. Why? <laughs> I think, I mean, to answer that question, I think it's important to understand why we founded Red Dot in the first place. And it really came from two motivations. The first is, as you know, my co-founders at Red Dot, Natasha and Alam, they are both Mauritian. And they have a huge passion for Mauritius, where the economy is going, how can we uplift you know, lives. And the big driver of that was building a knowledge economy. You know, we saw that Mauritius, like Singapore, is really small. And what is infinite is human capital and human potential. And we saw that you know, the next driver of growth has to be the knowledge economy. And how could we systematically create you know, knowledge projects, knowledge workers? And we found that you know, independent consultancy was the best way to do that, working with multi-stakeholders, interesting projects. The second thing was actually the belief in the power of business to do good. And that's really a personal passion of mine. You know, it's social impact. It's all these things around inequality, sustainability, health, education. There's such a big role for the private sector to play there, especially in Mauritius when it controls so much. And we thought, hey, you know, why don't we set up, you know, this platform to explore these questions and link them to business challenges? So, you know, coming from that place, it was five years of, of Red Dot. I think we, we had a good run. We served larger and larger companies, larger and larger projects. And we were, after five years, serving some of the largest companies in Mauritius, largest groups, MCB, MUA, and very, very proud of you know, that work. I think it's also the pandemic. We've been here for five years. We, I was itching to do global work. <laughs> I think that's one. And you know, we felt that there was so much more we could grow with our methodology, with our customers, with the experience we had. And we actually met EY on one of our projects. And we just found the partners there. We had such common values in that, you know, the whole mission of EY is building a better working world. Which is exactly what you exactly want to do. Exactly what we want to do. And I didn't know that until that conversation that EY actually had the strategy division globally, but not in Mauritius. And so as the conversation went, we were like, hey, we could do bigger things together. Why don't we actually talk about, you know, coming together? So it was a very nice, I'll say, acquisition of the team. The whole team is now at EY. We're building the EY strategy practice like an entrepreneur within, within EY. It's amazing. I mean, when I first read your news, first of all, I was so happy for you. And as you know, we, we had Jehal previously on, on this podcast. And it's just, as you said, it's rare to, to meet people with vision and I think that that's one of the things your your previous partner Natasha talked about as well is that sometimes we have a lack of intrapreneurship in employees in Mauritius as well is that so to find the right partner to be able to build that vision together is really wonderful so yeah. congratulations <laughs> but was it a big culture shock <laughs> going from you know red dot to massive multinational organization you know, you, you would think it is, and I think I had maybe one week of anxiety, but surprisingly, there hasn't been much of a culture shock. I think predominantly because EY is actually a partnership, it's not a corporation. Mm -hmm. So we have our own PNL, we build our own team, we choose the projects we want to work on. It's really like having a small business within you know, a larger context. So in that way, it hasn't. But I think the biggest shock for me is I came in and we had a... I think it was office opening. Like, we yeah, it was, office. you yes. coincided we, with the... <laughs> we had a new office. They um, opened an office for you. Yeah. <laughs> 
That was a big reason of joining, but no. There was an office warming, I think three days before I officially joined. So I hadn't been in yet, and I went there, and there were 300 people. Wow. And it dawned on me that, okay, I now have 300 colleagues. And I've actually never been in a company with more than 20 people my entire career. I've always been in startups. Wow. And it just dawned on me, like, okay, this is a very, very different context. And as I got into it, I've been there for a month. I think the biggest difference is that, you know, we have 300 colleagues locally. We have 9,000 strategists globally. We have 300,000 employees across the globe. And so for every decision... That's that, almost like a, a mini country, a small it's country. It's a mini country. It's like mm. one third the size of Mauritius. Yes. <laughs> and I think the, the implication of that is for every decision you make, you can seek a lot of counsel. And it just gives you the confidence to do a lot of more complicated, more complex, bigger work with a lot of integrity, you know, and certainty. And on our projects, you know, at Red Dot, we could only say, hey, we are great at this small slice of work. And here we say, hey, we can actually support end-to-end -end transformation. We can bring in the best people globally to support that. It's a, it's a very empowering place, you know, to have that level of support. So. Of course. And, and do you still see yourself as an entrepreneur? And, and if not, do you miss that aspect of it? I think it's the only thing I've known. <laughs> I think entrepreneurship is in my blood, you know, that I don't know any other thing. And I think that's why they also wanted us in, is to bring that entrepreneurial spirit to clients, to the company. And so, yeah, very much. I think an interesting thing I've realized, you know, being from Singapore, going to Silicon Valley, now being in Mauritius, that entrepreneurs are viewed very differently in Mauritius. Example, I mean, in Silicon Valley, it's like you be an entrepreneur and at the last resort, you go into corporate. Sure. <laughs> entrepreneurs have this mantra, okay, you, you tackle So the default problem. mode is being yeah, an entrepreneur. the default mode, you know, mm. and you wear failure as a badge of honour, you tackle big challenges, oops, you run out of money, you go into corporate, you get your dental <laughs> done, <laughs> your health benefits. And then you go back. You go out again, you know, you solve the next challenge. Mm. I mean, there's that, you know, fun and adrenaline to that. And I'm used to that, that culture. Yeah, I, I love the innovation space. You just, you're always a beginner, you're always creating, you're always... You know, in that 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 platform of creation and growth. Nice. And talking talking about Silicon Valley, would you would you say, obviously you've you've been there in in that very special culture like you described. Do you think Mauritius is ready for that type of innovation that that is obviously thriving there? Do do you think we have what it takes? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question, and I think we need to understand what Silicon Valley tech innovation means, right? And if I pare it down to the basic building blocks, I think the first distinct thing is Silicon Valley entrepreneurs tackle large intractable challenges, right? Mm -hmm. For example, the first company I was in, they were looking at live streaming. How do I have you being there across the world? <laughs> you know, this was before FaceTime and there was live streaming. Google, how do I organize the world's information and bring it to you, right, instantly? So it's these large, complex challenges that we try and tackle. The second thing is, they're built for scale, right? How do I leverage technology, data, networks to scale up from day one? And the third thing is the approach. One thing startups do insanely well is they take a very iterative approach to their markets, their customers, and their problems. So yes, I have my first hypothesis, I test it, in two weeks I'm finding something else, like, and that's how you win, right, in the market. You experiment. Yeah, and you, you try, experiment, yeah. you try, you, you move fast. And I think when we, initially at Red Dot, when we spoke to customers about Silicon Valley innovation, it seemed very big, very scary, very unknown. But when you actually start understanding, I mean, today we work a lot with boards and CEOs, 
they have intractable problems. Their businesses are in a very complex environment. I think COVID has accelerated this. There's no need to convince someone about technology and data. All CEOs talking about it. And I think the last thing is the approach, right? Almost every large corporate has said, I wish my people moved faster. And what we found, I think the, the, the key ingredient of what we found is that we bring that Silicon Valley approach of entrepreneurship into corporates to help them tackle these board level challenges. Whether it's, you know, I'm an established market, I'm losing market share, I want to innovate on new products and services, I'm a commodity and I want to have more control over my prices. Like, these are actually very complex, you know, contexts that we are saying, okay, proven traditional solutions wouldn't work in this case. How do we actually come in and innovate, you know, and do it in a more agile way? So surprisingly, I've actually seen a lot of adoption when you put it, you know, from that lens. But, you know, it's not, I would say, what, what people would maybe understand as Silicon Valley innovation. And is it always the use of technology or do you provide solutions that sometimes it's purely from a strategic perspective actually don't need technology? Do you always attack it from a how can we solve it using technology? Yeah. For me, technology is only a tool. I don't see it as, you know, you see everything as a nail and you apply the tool. And I think, but in, in many cases in this environment, technology always comes in to support that, right? I think out of our projects, maybe 90% technology, but 10% are actually social issues, right? We work with some organizations on how do you solve pricing challenges? How do you, you know, create more impact in your community? How do you solve a health you know, distribution challenge? So some of these, I would say, they are more methodology-based, they're more strategy-based. We don't attack every problem from a technology lens. I think the insight, once you understand technology, is that you understand scale and you can apply the same rules of scale to networks, to distribution. I think that's the power of exponential thinking. From what you're saying, it, it, it sounds like you've had the buy-in from these large corporates that you've, you've worked with. There hasn't been resistance in terms of, you know, people don't usually like change. We talked yeah. about change earlier. And you've seen that they've, they are ready to embrace that next step. I, I think in every market you see the whole gamut. Yeah. <laughs> I think being entrepreneurs, being, you know, optimists, we, we always work with the early adopters. After, I think, doing workshops across, I don't know, 10,000, you know, managers, CEOs here, I think we know who the early adopters are. And I think leadership is key. You, you need the leadership to have ambition, to have vision, to be bold, to say, hey, I actually want to take a bet and transform the industry. And do you think post-COVID, the, obviously we're, we're living in very difficult times. Just yesterday, the Bank of Mauritius raised the repo rate by 75 bips. And just globally, the, the pound just crashed earlier this week. Everyone's worried about fuel prices. Luckily, we're going into summer, but in Europe, they're going into winter. So looking at all these global challenges, do you think that the approach that you have can help solve and some of these challenges. Yeah, for sure. And I think this is where we are facing problems that we have never seen before. And it's not that one problem, it's the web of problems that create a very unique context to say, hey, I can't just, if I'm a telco, I can't just call a traditional telco expert to solve this because known solutions don't work anymore. And that's where we see that, especially for problems that's market-facing, mm -hmm. that's customer-facing. I mean, take Mauritius, right? Aging population, shrinking, you know, young generation, out of control, right? Terms brain of drain as well. Brain drain, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and in these times, what do you take a bet on? You know, so 
for me, that's the essence of strategy, right? What do you take a bet on and how do you discover that? I think the traditional approach of that is let's analyze. You know? And today, I, I don't think people want 400 page reports. I don't think they want $1 million and two years before they see results. It's like, okay, let's, let's take a bet. Let's test it out. Let's see the results. Let's adjust course and let strategy be agile. And let's hit the market running and actually see how people respond to it. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful because I see a lot more people responding and practicing, you know, methods like that. And they're very interesting results, very surprising results as well. They are sometimes counterintuitive when you take that approach. Do you think it would be unfair to compare Mauritius to Singapore? I'm saying Singapore because that's where you're from, which obviously is a small country which obtained its independence around the same time as ours. Do you think it's fair to compare, to try to... <laughs> To be like them? Yeah, I mean, as a principal, I never compare. <laughs> so, <laughs> Good <on that. laughs> I, don't think, I don't think comparison is the best thing to do. But yeah, I mean, for me, every country, every person, they have their own unique assets, personality, values. And I think, I think Mauritius has its own path. I think Mauritius has its own beauty. Singapore has its own path, has its own beauty. I think there are things that, you know, we can learn from each other. One of the things, Singapore is considered a small market and it's five million people. <laughs> Mauritius is one million people. And I think in terms of a business context, we always say think global from day one. You know, yes. you pilot it in your local market and then you export it. So yeah, I think there are, there are principles like that. I think we can learn. There's so much opportunity in Mauritius for just sustainable finance. I think that when I came to Mauritius, I was really interested in technology for good. I think You've it, been here for five, for five, five years, years now. Yeah. Okay. I think Mauritius being so close to Africa and being a lab, there's so much potential to explore, you know, issues around poverty, issues around healthcare, issues around education, distribution, climate change. And I feel like that that lab, that context, you know, could bring a lot of great ideas and great solutions. So the, obviously the opportunities are there and they are seemingly limitless. What do you think are the main hurdles to realising that, that potential? The first encounter is the lack of... I won't say the lack. <laughs> it's very, it's very sensitive. <laughs> yeah. The first I encounter a lot is actually leadership ambition. We hear a lot more CEOs saying, Hey, I'm okay with the company growing 3 to 5% year on year. We find very few CEOs saying, I want to transform the organization, I want to be carbon neutral, I want to disrupt my business before it gets disrupted. I mean, it makes a huge difference because the trickle-down effect is huge. Then your people don't get trained in future skills, your products and services don't, are not competitive, and lack of competition is a big one. Yeah. Absolutely. And then there's also the problem, I mean, we've kind of talked about it ad nauseatim with, with the other guests about the, the brain drain. And, yes. you know, we keep going around the same sort of question. And I hope that I hope it's temporary as a result of everything else that's going on in the world. But I think that, as you said, there is so, so much potential. Yeah. And obviously now using your network as well, you're obviously able to deliver that those ambition that at mass scale, scale yeah. yeah, with using your, I think you mentioned the 
4,000 strategy yeah, people? 7,000 strategists. 7,000, wow. In EY across the world. That's incredible. Yeah. Do you connect with them? I mean, obviously not all 7,000 of them, but have you been connecting with teams across? Very uh, much so. I mean, we can find anyone, we can search by expertise, you know, we can, we can connect up. But I think that's where I, I realized that once you're in the knowledge economy, the brain drain is actually not an excuse because even at Red Dot, we bring in experts, you know, from Silicon Valley at the frontier, like, and that's why it's the growth is going to come from 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 there. You know, there's there's, there's no scarcity, and absolutely people work virtually, and you'd be surprised the smartest people in the world interested to work on the biggest challenges, mm-hmm. and the limitation is ambition, mm-hmm. and I'm dead confident that if we have projects, the people will come. The problem is we don't have the interesting projects. Yes, yes. And and, and as you said, the potential is there is just having, finding people like you (laughs) who have the, you know, who have the passion, who have the vision, who have the drive. (laughs) No, I don't think it's naive at all. One of the things that I know that you focus on also is leveraging the power of of data. Can, Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. I think data was set apart, the companies that survive and those that will not. And I firmly believe in that. And I think it's a very abstract thing, maybe, for many people to, to understand. And you know, from, from where we're sitting, we see a couple of patterns. Mm-hmm. The first is just transparency and just making better decisions from data. I'm actually quite hopeful that you know, going into different companies, I've actually seen really, really good BI, business intelligence systems. And people are starting to make real-time decisions about based on that yeah, how to allocate resource, how do I innovate on my products. There, there are actually a few leading companies here, and they're doing so well because their decisions are informed by data. Right? And just sharing that data across the whole organization. So even you're at the front line, you know how your service level is affecting sales for next month. I mean, it's huge. And it's a, a new form of empowerment you know, and, and culture and habit and discipline across the whole organization. And that's where most people start, mm-hmm. just having the data to make decisions. Um, but I'll say the second pattern we're seeing is actually segmenting different populations and creating targeted products, offers, and service you know, from that. In retail, you know, different shops, different items that you can buy. I mean, that's obvious. On websites, you show a different layout, different offering. I think the frontier of that is Amazon actually knew when a woman was pregnant before she knew. You're joking. Just based on her purchasing behavior, right? And that's the frontier of being wow. so yes. specific you know, and granular with the data that you can really target specific offers to someone. Some companies are really doing that, you know. Maybe the third one is, and this is a, it's a, it's a tricky field, mm-hmm. it's replacing humans with algorithms, mm-hmm. right? I think that's the, the final piece of it, where you're starting to see that in investments, robo-investments, for example. I take a, I take a balanced stand on that. Sure. I, it can be quite controversial sometimes. It can be very controversial, well. and I think using it, you know, in the right way. I think fundamentally, I believe there's body intelligence. <laughs> there's like wisdom in your body, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think the, yeah, the, the best companies do both. You have, you know, and I, there was actually one client I was very, very inspired by where it was not sophisticated BI or anything, but it was just financial reports, sales okay. reports, and, you know, operational reports. Sure. And the management team knew that this founder had so much experience in his business right. that he could make intuitive decisions and they were always right, <laughs> even though the data was telling him, but he just knew so much about his business. Mm-hmm. They knew what to do. And for me, that's the balance, right? Yes. You have the data telling you something, you listen to your intuition, yes. 
you make a, a balanced decision. Yeah. But that shouldn't be an excuse that, okay, I don't have the data. To, yeah, to or I, I don't need the data. Or because, I don't need the data. Yeah, I yeah. think that's where sometimes, which perhaps is the difference between the really successful companies and the mediocre ones who just are happy with the 5% year-on-year growth where they don't think they need the data and then they become irrelevant. I mean, we've seen this in phone companies across the world, you know, all sorts of industries where because they were doing so well, they never saw what was coming just like in the in the rear mirror. Yeah, no, it's really wonderful. You're helping all these companies uh, achieve their, their full potential. Last question for you, Min. What advice, because I'm assuming you still see yourself as an entrepreneur, as you said, it's in your blood. What advice would you have for a young Mauritian entrepreneur who is scared to make that first foray into this brave new world where they have to risk their finances, they have to risk failure? As you know, we're a very ac academic country. So what advice would you have for them? Sure. I think if someone is scared to be an entrepreneur, the best thing is to work for a great entrepreneur first. And I say this from personal experience because I started my own company and then I worked for someone and I wished I worked for an entrepreneur first. Really? The learnings that you get, and this was a Silicon Valley high-tech startup, like it just, that, that's a discipline and there's a practice you know, to high growth entrepreneurship that, yeah, that once you're exposed to, you, you don't make you know, a lot of the early mistakes yes. that you would. Yeah. So that's if someone is already fearful to do it. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I think if you feel like you know, entrepreneurship is something you want to explore, I wouldn't hide anything. It's a difficult journey, right? And I think knowing the kind of entrepreneur you want to be based on your motivation is so important because entrepreneurship is so general. There are lifestyle entrepreneurs where I'm just doing entrepreneurship to fulfill a passion, right? I like surfing, I like coaching. I mean, it's just like, I want to do it for my passion. That's, that's an entrepreneur. I could be a small business entrepreneur. I want to feed my family. I want to have a small team. That's one motivation, and actually family is actually a big motivation for some people to do it, right? And then there's high growth entrepreneurship, which is a whole different league. I mean, the rules of that, the pressures of that, the speed of that is on another level. And then there's social entrepreneurs, where I'm, I'm doing this primarily for the impact, the business just making it sustainable. And for me, the clarity on that is very important. Otherwise, you can get advice that just is misaligned and you don't know why you're doing it when things, you know, are tough. And so understanding the why. Understanding of, the why, yeah. 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 And, and knowing the kind of entrepreneur that you want to be, I think it's critical as well. Thank you yeah. so much, Min. I Thank have you. to say on the camera, I cannot wait to join you in your new building next year. We're moving as well. And it's a beautiful building. For anyone who hasn't been, visit Akodepet. <laughs> um, you've got a great rooftop restaurant. I wish you all the best in your new venture and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you, Joanne.